everyone? This is Must Go Faster, a pop culture podcast for the people. I'm your co-host, Ben Brandlinger, broadcasting from Brooklyn. And I'm Robert Denfeld, out in Long Beach, California. So in this episode, Rob and I are are going to review Dunkirk, the brand new movie from Christopher Nolan. But first, winter is here. Finally. It is time to finally talk Game of Thrones. Yes. Yes. Which I know, Rob, you have been just dying. Highly I feel like 80% of the reason why we created a podcast was just for you to talk Thrones. So I can nerd out uh, on a little Thrones. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah, the nerd level is high right yeah. now, and we're looking for you to fully uh, is it even a nerd? that. Is it even a nerd I mean, nerd it's so now? mainstream. It's yeah. not even... No, it's... You're a nerd if you're not watching Game of Thrones at this <laughs> yeah. point. I mean, yeah. seriously, it's weird. Nerd culture is like, taken over. But right. That's another narrative we can tackle one <laughs> yeah. another time. Um, so Game of Thrones, uh, I don't think is a show that needs any introduction at this point. No. Uh, it's been around th- since 2011. It's basically been the biggest thing on television since it started. Yeah. It, it just entered its seventh season on HBO. And, um, you know, for me, I just kind of wanted to speak on like when I first got into Thrones, um, I actually held off for a few years. Um, really? I didn't start watching it in real time until season four, actually. Oh, really? I didn't um, know that. I know you were you were in right from the beginning, right? I mean, yeah. you're a big HBO like you check out all HBO. Con- I feel like you're just like a big HBO ambassador. Yeah, this was up your alley to begin with. Right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know much. Uh, like most people, I didn't know really anything about the story, unless you're a book reader, obviously. But, but I didn't, you're not a book reader. Right? Well, I, I've read the first and second books, but after oh, okay, gotcha. after the first season aired, I read the first two. Um, but mm-hmm. I haven't read the others. Um, but yeah, before the show started, I, you know, I had seen the trailer like everybody else and I thought, oh, this looks pretty cool. It looks different, you know, fantasy drama or whatever. But I didn't know the background and how big and, you know, grand the story is. But oh, it's grand. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did start watching the first season as it aired. And, uh, you know, the first episode hooked me. It's so, <clears throat> so compelling and, you know, so much going on. I, I think I rewatched the first episode twice before the uh, second episode. So yeah, I mm. was uh, pretty much immediately hooked and in love with the show. Yeah, I mean, I started so yeah, I binged everything one summer, and I gotta wow. say, Game of Thrones it is a it's a difficult show to binge because it's so dense, it's so dark, and can be like relentlessly brutal. Uh-huh. I think if you're able to watch, and Rob, you may have done this, but if you're able to watch more than like four episodes of the show at a time, then I don't know if I, like, trust you. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, like... Who are you? It's yeah. kind of, like, psychotic behavior. I don't know. They're yeah. just, the show is so... It's just so... Dead. I mean, it reminds me a bit of The Wire and how dense it is, but uh-huh. it, it's also just the relentless brutality and darkness. It's just... Right. Uh, it's, it's something not an you need easy... to take a... Take a, like, a... Take a breather. After yeah. That, it's not an I mean? easy yeah, watch, yeah. and there's so much going on. There's so many characters, so many names, uh, you yeah. know battles and history like the the history of the books is just unbelievable like if you listen to somebody um that's read all the books talk about the history you know we're currently in the the war of the five kings like that's the era that we're in in this storyline but there's so much history and I don't know if you've listened to any of the uh, the binge mode podcasts the ring on the Ringer <laughs> Network. Not. Okay, I, I did I did uh, listen to a few, and it's Mallory. You only watched you only listened to forty seven of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean a few. I probably listened to about ten or fifteen t- in total. Yeah, um, it, it's, a, it's a huge project by Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion of uh, the Ringer Network, and they're 
their podcast, the Binge Mode, and they basically rewatched all sixty episodes before this season started, and and you know did a podcast about every single episode, and yeah. so I was rewatching. I started with uh, the Reigns of Castamere, uh, which was the Red Wedding episode, uh, season three, episode nine. Yep. Yeah, so I started there, and uh, you know it's a daunting task to rewatch these episodes. Like at times, it's uh, you know there's just so much drama that you know you can only watch one per night. And I was watching them with my girlfriend Natalie, and uh, yeah, so I mean I was able to finish the the you know three seasons leading up to this premiere, but I was I have to say I was a little bit like burnt out by it by the end. Um, yeah. And maybe needed like uh, a few more days to digest what I had just seen before the premiere. So I, I recently or just a couple nights ago rewatched the the first uh, episode of this season just so I could, you know, have a little more time to reflect on it or whatever. But yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what finally did? So I held off for a few years just because like I'm not too into like kind of the fantasy realm. I was never a huge like Lord of the Rings guy, which I know Rob, you've been huge fan of and i don't I'm know huge, for whatever reason i was <laughs> conflating the two i'm a and, huge lord of the rings um, guy <laughs> you know what what really um yeah that was your pickup line when you were single and just, uh, <laughs> yeah in, co- in college that's what you would say worked party. so well all right you know i'm a big lord of the rings guy um <laughs> so i was i was out to dinner this is i guess after like the third season or maybe we were in the middle of third season uh-huh. out to dinner with a big group and someone brings up thrones and it was literally like this chain reaction of like everyone around the table was like god god are you talking god and then the waiter like uh. turned around and was like talking thrones god? and i was like <laughs> yeah. well i was just like in the middle of this vortex of like huh. people that were into something that i had no idea what they were talking about and i was just yeah. kind of like all right, it's time to be a part of this. And I remember that just being like the catalyst for me yeah. getting into it. Um, so then I, yeah, as I said, I, you know, binge watched and then I caught up uh-huh. like in uh, in the middle, of, like season four. Um, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, yeah. To me, that was like the weakest or season three maybe was the weakest season. Um, not that there were any that were like down seasons or whatever, but uh, that's maybe like the least memorable um, yeah. but yeah. Oh, I, I have like a few questions for you just about the, the, your history with the show or whatever, like you yeah, said, yeah, um, ahead. what is, what's like the most compelling aspect of the show? Like why, Yeah. I assume you, you would say that you, you love the, the show and the, the world and you ex- enjoy the experience. Love, uh, like what is it? Yeah. I what just makes love, it for you? Uh, it's mainly just brand. I'm just really, <laughs> yeah. Brands. It's just warging. Brand, brand <laughs> sucks. I'm sorry. Brand sucks. <laughs> He sucks. I could do Damn. an entire podcast on how awful Bran is. But anyway, okay. my favorite aspect, yeah, for me is definitely, you know, the production value on this show is insane. I mean, yeah. HBO gives them just this gigantic budget because of how big the show is. Yeah. But um, David Benioff, the scale, DB the Weiss. scale of everything uh-huh. and the action and the like, the world building is like, I mean, it's it's I think by far the most impressive in in TV history. I mean, yeah. a lot of these action sequences that they put together are some of the best, I mean, you can compare them with any of the best action sequences in film for the last Uh 20 years. I mean, I know every season typically has one episode. It's typically the penultimate episode uh, right Right. before the finale where (laughs) the entire thing is essentially one long war battle sequence. And those like always deliver. Those also, they they really make it like me watching the whole season um, really like worthwhile just because like, you know, it's a very complex show. It's deliberately paced. Like I've never been, I've never fully understood it, like, and I've never really tried, like, I don't, there's a level of how I'm into this show where I'm not as much into, like, the minutia of the story, but, um, you know, 
and it's a story that is like deliberately paced. Um, you know, the story kind of inches along and in the way it's structured of like all mm-hmm. these different storylines that sometimes take forever to finally like overlap. Mm-hmm. You know, there's characters names like Cersei and Sansa, like that are kind of just like on purpose, I think like confusing for people. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a show that's really ultimately about like power and, and politics. And right. I think it's, I think with this season, especially like given the, uh, the events of the last, you know, eight months or so. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that'll add like a new like layer of depth. Of, yeah. Like, the people, political people in power. Yeah. yeah the political yeah. under underlines and the, you know, connections people have been making to our, our modern political climate is, have been pretty fascinating recently. Yeah. Um, and I just, it, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I definitely think that, um, yeah, I mean, some of the, you know, obviously like the Jon Snow storylines and things at King's Landing and like Cersei mm-hmm. who played, you know, that's a very compelling character. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like I'm like into like 65 to 70 percent of the storylines at any given time. Right. And then the other 30 percent, right. I'm like, I kind of just tune out. Yeah. But um, it, it really is the last and this isn't an original opinion here, but like is the last show of like the monoculture right now where TV in general, there's just so much out there that it's become really fractured and it's yeah. like really hard to like link up with someone of like, oh, you're a you're watching this show and B, you're as far ahead as I am. And yeah. Stuff, you know, and this is one where you need to watch it week by week, week to you week. truly yeah. feel like you're missing out on something. Yeah. Um, if you're Culturally. not a part of it. Yeah. yeah and it's I mean, just it's the ultimate water cooler show. Totally. I was going to say, like, uh, going to work after an episode of Thrones, you know, everybody has seen it, uh, you know, yeah. the night of and it's it's uh it's just maybe I don't know. See, people have been saying like it's the last show that's like this, but you know that's what people said about Breaking Bad. That's what people said about Mad. There could Men. be another one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm not gonna say it's the last show ever. That's a big water cooler show, but it is certainly right now like the one show that you really have to stay up to date on if you want to be part of the discussion and you know read the blogs and listen to the podcasts. Like, there's so much. Uh, talk about every episode you kind of have to keep up but yeah do you want to get to get this list some... this top five yeah okay. yeah so i i don't think i'm yeah i didn't even mention it in the front so no um, that's fine yeah do you want to uh yeah i'll introduce you, you want to do the on do you want to do the honors sure Go sure ahead. so um you know we're gonna do a top five list for game of thrones and we we're trying to figure out what that should be you know there's so much we could go with top five characters top five episodes um but we decided a big, you know, aspect of this program and this story is who dies, the deaths, mm. and they're yeah. some of the most memorable scenes, some of the most horrifying and most talked about scenes in the shows, uh, or in the in the show itself. So, we are going to do top five Game of Thrones deaths, and the way we structured this, it took a little, you know, back and forth between Ben and I. Um, we are going to do five categories, uh, five different death categories, and then your top choice for that category um, mm-hmm. with a caveat of three allowable honorable mentions per host. Strictly three. Yes, at, at max. So that'll be a total of eight deaths per host max and... We'll That's try 16 to sixteen total deaths. Sixteen total deaths. Uh, some I will be. Math. I believe some will overlap. We haven't discussed every answer to this yet, but we'll we'll just see how it goes. So yeah, uh, the five categories. Just to introduce real quick off the top, we're gonna go most impactful death, most shocking death, most sad death, most mm. gruesome or horrifying mm. death, and most satisfying death. So. Without further ado, Ben, uh, why don't you give us your first 
most impactful death. Thanks for that intro, Rob. And I am going to go with my most impactful is the death of Ramsey Bolton Mm. in season six, episode nine, known as Battle of the Bastards uh, at the end of that episode, which I know you're a massive uh, proponent of that episode i am said some some you've made some bombastic statements although rewatching it rewatching that yeah. season i think uh episode 10 season 6 episode 10 the winds of winter might actually be a better episode oh, the but finale. yeah the, the yeah. battle itself of battle of the bastards was just incredible and yeah loved it so so this death of ramsey i mean it's kind of like and we'll get to Joffrey uh, in a little bit, but it had that Joffrey type of feeling of just how much the audience grew grew to hate this character. Right. I mean, I would say he's like easily top two or three most hated characters, just a despicable person. And the actor who plays him does a great job of really like pulling that hatred out of you as he's on screen. Yeah. And he just gets awful and awful throughout several seasons. And I, I would say it's, it's very, this death is very impactful, which by the way, it's death by, I believe it's a, by a pack of dire wolves, not just um, wolves or dogs. Is it the dire wolves? Not dire or wolves. It's some kind of animal. Oh, no, okay. they're so just these are the details. I, I sometimes glaze over. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, that's me. fine. Um, they're not dire wolves. They're just Ramsey's hounds that he keeps. Um, okay. Yeah, well, it's it's Winterfell. nice that he his own hounds uh, destroyed him. Right. I think the um just kind of the aesthetics of the scene too. Rewatching it, just like the lighting is really interesting like there's so much darkness you can barely make out Ramsey's face in this mm-hmm. and the way i mean sansa she kind of gets her revenge and has the these packs of his hounds yeah tear him apart she walks away smiling and i think it's just very impactful because he was really kind of the key villain for at least like two seasons for sure and he held a lot of importance of the show right um and i think kind of like removing him it just like as far as the storyline goes was he was just like a key piece of that yeah and um i just had to mention is that because it was like one of those like it was for fans i mean there wasn't a person on this planet um <laughs> you know who who wanted to see him like Impacted survive this, this this series yeah yeah so um i that was my my number five Boy, they linger. They they linger a little bit on that that first bite to the face. That's uh, oh it was, yeah, yeah. It was nice. They do a great job <laughs> of like they'll give you. I mean, sometimes they'll cut away, but they also. I mean, this show is oh, like yeah. as it's horrific at times. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Rob, what is your uh, your most impactful Game of Thrones death? What is to be done with this traitor, Your Grace? All right, so I'm gonna go with Lord Eddard Ned Stark mm. in season one, episode nine, Baylor, mm. titled Baylor. Uh, so this is Sean Bean dies at the hands of Sir Ilan Payne of the Kingsguard, uh, and determined by King, may God's rest his soul, King Joffrey, uh, oh, Joffrey, yeah. <laughs> Joffrey um, Lannister slash Baratheon. Sir Ilan. Bring me his head. So uh, Ned Stark was beheaded by Sir Ellen Payne, and this really just got the ball rolling for the entire story. Um, yes. Like you know, it. it I could it set have... the tone of like these are the things that happen in Thrones. Like they'll take right. the pro- like the protagonist, someone you is like you know almost the hero that you don't expect, and they'll just brutally slaughter them with no yeah. regard for. 
yeah for your feelings it was it was definitely i mean it could have been i could have put it as most shocking but i think it was most impactful because it just you know so many things happened because of this you know yeah. rob rob stark had to become the king of the north and mm-hmm. launch a battle against the lannisters and you know Sansa, uh, you know, hated Joffrey after this moment uh, completely, and then Arya escapes um, escapes King's Landing to go off on her venture. Uh, that still to you know to this episode, she's still on her own doing her thing. Um, so just so much came from this this moment, and I just I just think it was the most impactful death. Um, <laughs> just and, bottom line, man, I don't know what to tell you. I just most yeah, it's the most impactful death to the story. Is all you can say. Um, but I have actually my, my first honorable mention in this category. So it's going to be John Aaron's death, who many, Mm. many listeners may not remember. I'm not sure you remember that name. Uh, this sounds familiar. Yeah. This was the hand of the King of Robert Baratheon, King Robert Baratheon, who basically the very first episode, we don't see this death. We only hear about it in the first episode. Um, and this is the reason that King Robert and the Lannisters uh, come to Winterfell in the first episode to visit Ned, and Robert asks uh, Ned to be the hand of his new hand of the king. We're not a hundred percent sure. Book readers would probably say otherwise that they are sure, but we think uh, Cersei is responsible for poisoning um, John Arryn. Uh, that's that's how I remember it. But yeah, that's. It's not seen on the show, but but it has is, a lot of long term impact. Yeah, it, I mean, technically, it did drive. It started the whole story of of what we see in the show and in the books that uh, that Robert came to Winterfell to get Ned. So, my first honorable mention. Uh, next, we're gonna go to most shocking death. So why don't mm. you go first? So my most shocking is uh, Tyrion with the crossbow Boom. to Tywin Lannister. Yes. While he's on the can, I love that, that he's, like, on the toilet in some royal throne, like, <laughs> you know, contraption. Uh-huh. And this happens at the the finale of season four. And I think this is, like, most shocking in just kind of how ro- ironic the type of death is for a character like Tywin. And that he's, like, this super well-respected, like, military general. You expect him to die, like, in a blaze of glory on the battlefield. Uh-huh. And he was, like, literally just, like taking a dump in the middle of the night <laughs> and his son comes and takes a crossbow to his chest. And yeah. I think the death, death by crossbow, it's a bad way to go. I mean, those things seem very powerful. It's a very like swift, uh, it's very swift death. I don't know. Yeah. Die, crossbows, I want to mess around with them. Kill and I think fa- that, um, kill your father on the privy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I've always found Tywin, I, you know, he's, uh, I think just, kind of underrated his character. He was always one of my favorite, just like a very yeah. magnetic magnetic performance, one yeah. of the best on the show for me. And um, I, someone actually kind of, even though he was technically pretty evil, kind of wish that he was around still. Like he was right. he was kind, the kind of evil that you, not like Joffrey or Ramsey, where it's like you just really want their lives to end. Like this was someone who was kind of more of like an evil military genius and was like a very bad person, but wasn't like sadistic terrible and like like you know someone like Ramsey or Joffrey but that is my um my most shocking because yeah I mean nice. it was when it happened I mean and just the way it happened was what it like was just something that was very surprising so Rob what is your what is your most shocking Game of Thrones death I, I agree with you real quick about Tywin I, I he was a very compelling character and just just so wise and like played the game yeah, so well that totally yeah, 
yeah. He's he a chess a master. Great character, yeah. yeah. All right, so my f- most shocking has to be Jon Snow dying in season five, episode 10, Mother's Mercy. Temporarily. Yes, at the hands of his <laughs> own sworn brothers of the Night's Watch, uh, led by First Ranger Sir Alistair Thorne, or Alistair Thorne, and mfing ollie of the house uh, of the house unnamed village uh raided by thens um basically this is another language by the way (laughs) yeah this this death is also known as the mutiny at castle black um you know ollie ollie tricks Jon snow into coming down because he says his his long lost uncle benjen stark has returned from the north uh north of the wall and uh, he tricks him, and Jon Snow comes out, and he, he's, he's led to this this post, and it just says on the post, traitor. And then uh, one one sworn brother after another oh, yeah. for the watch. For the watch. For the watch. For the watch. You know... I think the only thing that would have made this scene more shocking, I remember thinking this when it after it aired, is uh-huh. if like Sam was the final uh, oh, was that, the final yeah. person to that would have just been like even for Thrones they I guess have some standards of like right. how much shock how much they can shock the audience if uh-huh. like his old buddy Sam was like the one to put the final oh, stab God. in that would have been would brutal be, <laughs> right yeah well yeah, um yeah. yeah for me it was the most shocking just because it was the last scene of a season and we were left hanging you know the audience was left hanging for an entire uh you know year waiting awaiting news and there were so many rumors on the internet is is Jon Snow alive is he in Ireland filming or whatever so it was just like created a lot of buzz around the show and uh it's very shocking moment it was one of those where like in the entire off season you're like what's gonna happen and then it kind of threw a lot of just (laughs) like I like that a lot of like investigation people realize you know people like like Rogue were like oh we he still has Kit Harrington still has like his yeah. hair long and you right. kind of it kind of just became this consensus of like oh he's gonna come back like they can but at the time it was super shocking right and all the theories of how he's gonna be brought back to life and etc so all right uh let's most get to sad. most sad death once you start Ben so um I struggled with this one a bit I had yeah. one that I uh kind of swapped out last minute but I feel confident about my choice is the most sad death um was i'm gonna say Toman baratheon all right in the season six finale the winds of winter which you had mentioned earlier as being one of the definitely one of the you know three or four like masterpiece episodes game for of sure has produced yeah and this death it was by you know suicide as king's land is king's landing is like burning in all right. these different ways the sep- yeah and he's just like unlike joffrey like Tommen, you know he had good intentions like he's a decent boy he was kind of forced to being into this role as king it's not something he necessarily chose if i remember correctly mm-hmm. and it's pretty just unexpected the way it happens i mean the shot or it's like the symmetrical shot that shows like this open window and he mm-hmm. just comes into the frame he just very matter through. of factly just steps up and then just dives off and i right i do like how this has become like a popular gif on the internet when <laughs> yeah like, something's yeah. gone crazy they just like tweet that out <laughs> and it kind of just sums up my feelings um yeah. But yeah, I think that, you know, but it was, it is a pretty tragic death because um, just like through circumstance is kind of what led him. And I don't really blame right. him for, no. given what he was up against, I don't really blame the route he t- 
took just because it, it was an awful life he had. But um, just, yeah, a pretty, like, tragic figure and the way he goes and the way, you know, there's no gore involved. It's, like, kind of kind of stands out because it's land. just this, like, yeah, it's just, like, this very, you know, just leaps out. Not even leaps out. He just, like, leans forward. Yeah, it's just cold it, and cold and sad and tragic. And, <laughs> right. Uh, and yeah, it's really yeah. the, I, I think it's the first suicide we see in this whole story. Which, yeah, that's a good you point. You know, there, there's so much death. There's much but, death that, yeah, yeah. you think there'd be more suicide. Um. So I'm going to go with actually my first honorable mention too, yeah. and the most sad, something that may have been overlooked, and that is the death of one of the wildlings giants, though I believe his official name is One One. Yeah, One Weg One Darwin. I Okay. This is what I yeah. this is what I read. So um, I think most book most people call him One One. <laughs> one most one. book readers, that but yeah, 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 that's his full name. I'm into nice the giants, man. I yeah. you know, this was in the Battle of the Bastards, which we mentioned is where, where Ramsey went down. Um uh-huh. I, not that this giant had like some you know budding personality, but they're just like lovable creatures, and I, they were real kind of like the secret weapon of the wildings. And I, I really, yeah. I just don't want to see any of the giants go down in general. And I guess this was the one that would had the most screen time. Yeah. And the way he dies is like, it makes it even more infuriating because it's Ramsey who kills him, and he's like shot yeah. in the eye like repeatedly. Right. He shoots like a hundred arrows, and it, it kind of shows that like, you know, because of their physical presence, you think that these creatures are like. Am- immortal and it kind of just like it humanizes the giants in a way yeah, that's like yeah. they can be brought down like event you shoot enough arrows they're going down but yeah. um i do love just like the seek the action sequences where like the giants are involved i just think that's like a really cool element yeah that brings in this like other world and just like they're just the power that they have and the size it's just i've always enjoyed when they're the uh the one ones are involved so that is my honorable invention for for most sad nice yeah uh, rob what is your what's your most sad um i i also love the giants i think it's part of the, maybe the best yeah. uh computer generated aspect of the show but mm. uh so my most sad is i'm gonna go with hodor hodor mm. aka willis uh his given name willis um, this is in season six, <clears throat> episode five, titled The Door. Yes. And he dies at the hands of a horde of whites who, uh, you know, tragically tore him apart as he holds the door and allows... Whites. Uh, I like how you just say whites. <laughs> well, that's what they're called. They're, they're called <laughs> I know, the I know. whites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the white walkers are those, the leaders or whatever that, uh, have to be killed by dragon glass. But anyway, um... I digress. The... Yeah, he, he's torn apart uh, and allows time for Bran and uh, Mira Reed to escape into the into the north. And yeah, it's just all right. So I was struggling with this. Um, I have an honorable mention for this category that I'll get to in a second. But I decided to go with Hodor just because of the weight and gravity and just the scope of uh, scope of this moment and just <clears throat> realizing all at once that his entire life and existence and purpose on this show and in the books and as a character in general was all leading up, you know, it was all like, I don't know if you want to say it was predetermined or destined to happen. Like his whole life was fatalistic. Yeah. It was all leading up to this moment. And I still, to this day, don't fully understand the inception warging that was going on in this moment. Like, Bran was yeah. <laughs> warging into young Hodor who somehow like it ruined the rest of his life and he could only say Hodor uh, and just the 
everything coming together in that moment and the music and the way it was shot and the actor playing young Hodor or young Willis and, you know, the, the tragic shot of him lying on the ground and spasming and saying, hold the door, hold the door. Yeah. And then and that's it, where it, you realize the name came from. And yeah, yeah. Unbelievable storytelling. And I mean, just the the grandeur of that moment and just the fact that his entire role in the story was to to do this for Bran, to save him. It's just, I thought it was so sad. And I, mm. it was the, maybe the most emotionally impactful moment for me watching this entire series. So Damn. I had to go with that as the most sad death. Um, my honorable mention for this category, um, this is my second honorable mention. I'm going to go with Princess Shireen Baratheon. Um, in this the, one, I feel like we can't even like talk about this. One. I know it's really it's so sad. dark. <laughs> uh, season five, she's burned at the stake at the hands <laughs> of the red woman, Melisandra as a sacrifice to the Lord of light. Um, and oh, not to, she is, oh, oh yeah, Lord of light. <laughs> not to mention that Stannis and her mother, uh, Selyse, uh, you know, approved of, of this burning the at the stake, <laughs> yeah, sacrificing, trying to muster up a little uh, magic for you know the Stannis, you know the the flaming heart uh, banners of Stannis Baratheon to take over Winterfell. Uh, ultimately defeated, and this was you know she died for nothing. And as uh, as Sir Davos uh, Seaworth puts it, you know she she was a a young girl who was nice and kind and she died for nothing, you know? Uh, so oh, yeah, it's yeah. just, just such a tragic death and really, uh, wasted, you know? Uh, and I just loved, I loved Davos and her scenes together. They were maybe like the most charming and light scenes that the show has offered at, yeah. uh, in, in its entirety. So yeah, just a really sad death for me. Yeah. I remember that it, it getting like a lot of backlash, even for like, yeah, again, their standards as being a little too sadistic of like, did we right. really need to go there? Did we need to show it the way it happened? I mean, it yeah. was, I remember at the time them getting some, you know, backlash on the on the interwebs. But uh, yeah. let's move on to uh, a lighter subject, most gruesome death. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So mine is uh, the Mountain versus Oberyn Martell. Yes. The death of Oberyn. The Viper. In, uh, yeah, the season... Uh, I don't know the season. I, this is episode eight of what season five? I, um, say, or season four? I think season four. I, I forgot yeah, that. season yeah. four. It's called the Mountain versus the Viper, which is a super dope name. And this is basically the duel that determines Tyrion's fate on whether or not he lives or dies because he's being accused of uh, poisoning Joffrey earlier uh-huh. in the season. Is that correct? Okay. And um, one thing about this this scene is. My roommate made a good point: is like when it starts, the duel's about to happen. We have Oberon. Uh, who has like this uh this long spear that he's using in the fight yeah and he does this like extended like twirl to like show off his sword skills and he's all like proud of himself and he's like and i remember my roommate just being like oh yeah he's dead like when he saw that like (laughs) this guy's gonna die like just if you know the rhythms of the show and like Uh how it works like it's kind of obvious in that moment like oh yeah he's gonna have a real death he's showing off he's Um, dead but it's uh this scene is like an amazing set piece in King's Landing. Just like I rewatched it, like the backdrop against the water. Uh-huh. It has like a Roman Colosseum type vibe. Yeah. It's like super epic. One of the best battles in the whole series. 
And I'm really fascinated by like the sheer size of the sword that the mountain oh, has and the size of the man himself. Oh yeah. But that sword is like four times the size of, of me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just like the gigantic sword. It has to be, I don't know. Probably like a hundred my pounds. sword history. Right. Right. It, like that sword weighs more than me. Yeah. Up, I'm <laughs> sure. Um, and it uh, has to be the, just kind of the biggest sword in TV history. Yeah. So you think the way the, the scene goes is you think Oberon is one because he takes his spear through the chest of the mountain. Right. But in typical got fashion, the unexpected happens and he makes the mistake again of kind of showboating. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, you know, I have, you know, and then basically uh, the mountain is able, I believe, like, I think stabs him and kind of gets him back on the ground and essentially just squeeze, literally takes his hands, his thumbs and puts him on Oberon's face and just squeezes his head until it literally pops. Yeah, it explodes. It, yeah, it's an explosion. It's not even a pun. It's, it's a full-on explosion. They cut to, like, his sister after his head is exploded. She's horrified. Yeah. And I think there's, like, a nice... It's weird to say nice here, but, like, they cut to all these different... Uh, reactions from everyone involved as uh-huh. these events happen and it's like it's just interesting to see like you know whether it's Tyrion, like he has this look of like he feels like ill and like he knows yeah. his fate has been quote-unquote sealed yeah you have the sister who's horrified you have like cersei who's like so happy that like uh-huh. she kind of get, gets what she wants you get tywin's face who's kind of like you know he's very like into just like law he's yeah like, it shall he's be like, done just, now yeah very, he's just, like, yeah, yeah. stroking his chin <laughs> right <laughs> Totally. Um, so yeah, th- and so that is my most gruesome death. I think nice. when the head explodes, um, you got to put it up there. And yeah. I want to mention my my second uh, honorable mention okay. is the Targaryen prince who gets quote unquote crowned. Yes. So this happens back in season one, episode six, and he gets molten gold poured over his head from the Dothrakis in a very like helpless way. Yeah. It is a very jarring visual. I went back and rewatched it. It reminds yeah. me a bit actually of the scene of like the Nazi melting in Raiders of Lost Ark. Oh yeah. You know good what I'm talking call. about? Yeah, totally. I got like a certain vibe there. And I don't know. I don't know how an actual molten gold death would go, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's fairly accurate of like how the body like deteriorates. Yeah. His head just like caves in a little bit and it, it Yeah, like, and then like and he, and he falls to the ground like clunk. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> And um, in the clip, there's also, like, this guy right behind him who's, like, holding him, who's, like, literally just, like, giddy throughout. Yeah. <laughs> and just, that's a whole other element of just yeah. how demented the show can be. Uh-huh. And there's a nice uh, zinger by the Dothraki main dude at the end who's just, like, a crown for a king. A crown <laughs> you know, for like a king. Yeah, right. that's, uh, that's called Drogo says a crown for a king right before he pours the gold Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. A crown for a king. Yeah, I use that line sometimes in daily life, you know, yeah. just like answer an email, crown for totally. a king. But um, <laughs> that is my my honorable mention for most gruesome. Um, nice. Rob, what is your most gru- gruesome got death? All right, so obviously plenty to choose from here. Uh, I was thinking about using Oberyn, but I mm-hmm. decided to go with Rob and Catelyn Stark in The Reigns of Castamere, Season 3, Episode 9, also known as the Red Wedding. Oh yeah, uh, very memorable scene. Um, many, 
many Starks die at the hands of uh, Walder Frey, Roose Bolton, and the Lannister slash Frey group of uh, group of cowards, you could say, that uh, mm-hmm. you know killed their guests upon on a wedding uh, night in in the Frey castle. Um, also, Talissa Stark, who was the uh, the new wife of uh, Rob, who they met on the battlefield. She was a doctor or nurse or whatever, and uh, she was stabbed brutally in her pregnant belly to uh, to kick off the festivities of the Red Wedding here. Um, and yeah, just the entire scene. I'm, it's more than one death, obviously, but just the, the scene itself is so horrific and, and gruesome. Uh, you know, the belly stab, the... Uh, you know, Rob is shot with multiple arrows and then gets his throat slit. And then Catelyn grabs Walder Frey's wife and, you know, threatens to kill her. And he says, oh, I'll find another. And, uh, <laughs> right. you know, and yeah, then, what a vile old man that guy is. Yeah, he gets uh, or she gets her throat slit by Catelyn. And then Catelyn gets uh, her throat slit right right there. Uh by some random Lannister Frey soldier. And yeah, it's just like, it, I, it made me think of like Kill Bill level blood, sp- mm. blood spurting. And yeah. it's just extremely gruesome. And yeah, it had to be my most, uh, most gruesome death scene in the show. Um, so this is, we're going a little long here. As yeah, as we hang do, with us. Yeah, but we're going into our final category, right? Most satisfying. Yes, most satisfying death. Okay. So this is a tough one. Why don't this you give it one first? I alluded to earlier, but this is the death of none other than Joffrey Baratheon. Yes, death by poison. Yes, the purple the best wedding. Best way he could go. Yes, the purple wedding. Season four, episode two is called the Line and the Rose. It's the uh, final scene in this episode. Happens earlier in the season, so I remember it being pretty surprising for such a major character. Yeah, you know, this was right. This was also right around the time I started watching Thrones in real time. Uh-huh. And um, Joffrey, look, he tormented viewers for you know three seasons. Yeah, and karma. I'm a believer in karma, and this finally comes back around to haunt him. And you knew eventually, I think he was going to get got, but it was just <laughs> a matter of when and how. One of the most hateable characters ever, not only in this show, but in pop culture. Yeah. I, I think he's more hateable than Ramsey. I just remember being like angry every time he was like on screen. He's just like the ultimate brat, a face you want to punch. And this scene is um, set up really well. Uh, it, it takes its time. You get this sense yeah. of kind of impending doom throughout these kind of like wedding pomp and circumstance and mm-hmm. festivities. It's like this calm before the storm feel. Mm-hmm. He, you know, Joffrey, uh, you know, happily pours red wine on Tyrion's head, <laughs> right. which really crosses the line for me. And, and Tyrion has a nice comeback line of just like, a fine vintage, a shame that it's spilled. And that yeah. just like enra- enrages Joffrey <laughs> even more. And um, just the scene, uh, you know, that he's behaving leading up to his poisoning. It's kind of like a Joffrey, like greatest hits of all his like awful traits. Yeah. And um, it's a good way of like his finale. And it makes sense that they would kill him after this because this is just like, I don't think anyone could take any more of, of John after this. And <laughs> yeah. they really milk this death, um, the way the poison slowly creeps in. The camera holds on his face for good measure. They know that this is what audiences wanted. Right. And it's, uh, you know, just the grandeur of the wedding really adds, like, depth to the to the scene. Mm-hmm. When he first starts choking, it's just so great. Like, he, Joffrey, you know, you choke well, Joffrey. Yeah, he and, does. Um, he was he, a great uh, actor. I, I thought oh, he, yeah, well, no, totally. Like, Ramsey. Like, yeah. he, I got to give props to, yeah, whoever played him. Cause right. 
but, I forget um, his name, but yeah. I also love how no one really helps him when he like starts choking. Right. Like I think Cersei's like, somebody save him, and everyone's just like, uh, why? Yeah. You know, I actually have a poster hanging in my room of that final shot of Jeffrey <laughs> where he's like bleeding out of his nose. Do you really? One. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Unrelated, I'm also it's a like, psychopath. No. It's a little uh, sadistic. <laughs> yeah, that's how I greet people in my yeah. Um So that is my most satisfying death, and I got to throw in my final honorable mention yeah. to round things off. So this is actually one that you may have forgotten about, but this is his character name is Carl Tanner. Very Ooh. simple name for the GOT universe. But this is Death by Jon Snow in season four, in the middle of the season. And... Um, Carl was someone we did not like. Uh, he betrayed the Night's Watch. He had killed Lord Commander Marmont. Uh-huh. And this scene really is a great use of Jon Snow's sword skills. Yeah. And he's essentially stabbed in the back through, back of the head through the mouth yes. by Jon Snow during the Night's Watch raid. And, uh, and it, it, once it goes through, they do this shot that shows, like, the side view. Uh-huh. And then John like, pulls it back out. And it's just, like, wow. brutally awesome. Yeah. And I remember, you know, it's kind of like a fist pump moment uh-huh. as far as these these moments in the show go. Yeah. But uh, that is my my honorable mention. Good one. Uh, yeah. I know. I, I, I'm proud that I, I can sense your uh, – <laughs> you're, you're proud that I, that I pulled that I out. I am. Um, so what is your – uh, most satisfying Game of Thrones death to round off this this top five. All right, to round this out, I'm so both. I have an honorable mention for this category to finish my my eighth and final uh, choice here, and both of these are ones that you have mentioned, but I think they're worth mentioning again in a different category uh, as most satisfying. Uh, my first choice is Ramsay Bolton in you know. Battle of the Bastards at the mm. end at the hands of oh yeah I said at the hands of really Jon Snow and Sansa and the dogs and the yeah. pups you know it's right, um, right. the pups because <laughs> yeah because Jon Snow pretty much beats his face into yeah. oblivion <laughs> right. uh, and then looks up and Two-parter. sees Sansa standing there and you know remembers that this is this is her death to to have you know <laughs> she she deserves to kill him. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that, I mean, just the, the entire season, he is really, really terrible, uh, to say the least. And everybody's rooting for this to happen and it finally does. And it's, you know, a, a cheering at the screen moment on the couch and yeah, just, just so satisfying to see Sansa smiling as she, she turns and walks away as the pups ravage his face or whatever. Mm. Um, my honorable mention, last one to wrap it up, uh, is one that you just said, Viserys Targaryen in season six or season one, episode six, a golden crown called Drogo, uh, a crown for a king. Viserys is just a very, I mean, people that haven't rewatched the first season, um, he's just such a hated character and, you know, people already had sort of fallen in love with Daenerys at this point. He, uh, yeah. This is Daenerys's sister, Viserys, or excuse me, Daenerys's brother. Um, and yeah, he's just so hated in the first season and just a despicable character. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of satisfaction when Khal Drogo uh, pours the molten hot gold on his head and he, he crashes to the ground. It's just, uh, 
just a nice moment. It's got to be the worst <laughs> way to go out of all these deaths. I think Molten Gold, Death by Molten Gold is the worst Yeah. Uh, out of all these, which is saying something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that wraps up this uh, section of the podcast um, where we go through the top five Game of Thrones deaths. Real quick, And though. we'll be back with more Thrones... Uh, thrones content throughout the season what were you gonna say no i know this is going long uh real quick just because it may happen in this next episode um oh, yeah. se- or episode two of season seven what it, just real quick what's your most anticipated or expected death for this season or or the show in general oh, man do you have one uh i think i could see something's gonna happen with jamie lannister and cersei one yes. of them is going down Yes. I believe, <laughs> is that what you had? Well, you I had? have Cersei Lannister, um, yeah. you know, going uh, the the witch in in season five, episode one. We see the first ever uh, flashback on the show. Um, and it's it's Mag Maggie, the frog, the witch who uh, gives Cerse, young Cersei the prophecy um, and basically predicts her future. And she allows three questions for Cersei. Um, and she accurately predicts that she will not marry Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, but rather King Robert Baratheon, and, uh, they will have three kids, or she will have three kids, uh, gold will be their crown, gold will be their shroud, um, and then she also adds, which means that, you know, gold will be their hair, I take it as that, and that gold will be their shroud, they will all die, uh, and then that Volunkar, uh, which in High Valerian means little brother, will ultimately kill her with wrapping his fingers around her neck. So my prediction is that not Tyrion, which is what she has always long expected to be the little brother that kills her. I believe that Jamie, who was actually born minutes after Cersei, their twins, will be the one to choke her to death with his one good hand left okay so that is a very my, specific prediction all of that my, <laughs> went completely over my head but you okay. sound confident yeah. and i'm i'm right there behind you so uh, yes yeah we'll see we'll do that um and yeah in short cersei um so we are actually uh you've seen dunkirk i am seeing it tonight we're recording this on a saturday july uh-huh. 22nd we're gonna break here i'm gonna go see dunkirk and then we're going to talk tomorrow morning because our schedules have been crazy we're splitting this up we're going to release it as one episode but uh we will uh be back in this same episode but it'll be the next day if we sound a little groggy we're recording it in the morning <laughs> yeah, so uh, early. <laughs> we'll do our best and yes. we're, i know we're gonna have we'll be charged up by that. dunkirk i promise this is gonna be a long episode but who cares whatever who cares? dunkirk it's christopher nolan and game of thrones these are big heavy hitters in the pop culture yeah. world so uh yeah we'll see you guys on the other side enjoy dunkirk ben oh i will Every hour the enemy pushes closer. Welcome back. Uh, What you just heard was a clip from Dunkirk, which Rob and I just saw, and now we're going (laughs) to review it. Yes. Rob, I want to point out that it is currently 8.30 in the morning for you. It is. Uh, given our schedules this weekend, so I just want to say I respect the commitment, and I hope uh, all our lis- listeners uh, can respect it as well if you sound <laughs> it's okay. a little bit groggy. <laughs> I'm ready. I just had my one piece of white 
toast with a little bit of strawberry jam, so I'm ready to go. Into, yeah, in tribute to Dunkirk. So, <laughs> into, uh, yeah. right, right, right. Uh, so this movie, written directed by Christopher Nolan, is based off the true story in World War II, where Allied soldiers are surrounded by the Germans and evacuated from the beach of Dunkirk, France. Yeah. Um, personally, I'd never really heard of Dunkirk until this movie was announced, but it's a very well-known event in the UK. It's almost has this like mythical presence. Um, uh-huh. It's really considered a miracle, this huge triumphant moment in the history of England. Yeah. And I read that uh, Nolan said basically, not to get too history buff on you, but uh, uh-huh. and this, the success of this evacuation allowed Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister at the time, to kind of impose the idea of, of moral victory, which allowed huh. him to galvanize his troops like civilians and impose a spirit of resistance while the logic of this sequence should have been uh-huh. that of surrender. So like huh. militarily, it was a defeat, but on a human plane, right. it was this like colossal victory. So it just had yeah. so much importance in the, the landscape of the world, you know, World War Two in general. Yeah. And the civilian aspect of it, just having the uh, yeah, you know, those them involved. everyday citizens come over with their boats and mm-hmm. rescue so many people. Yeah, totally. Just probably such an uplifting story for the country at the time. Yeah, and and still remains so. And um, right. yeah, I just wanted to point that out to give some more historical context before we dive into the the cinematic <laughs> achievement and whatnot. Um, so this before movie, we abandon uh, ship, right, right. It stars uh, Tom Hardy, Mark Rylance, Cillian Murphy. Harry Styles from One Direction, who's surprisingly oh, yeah. good. Um, yeah, and yeah. other than that, I mean, I would say like a bunch of unknown British actors. I, I read that uh, Nolan saw like in just doing his research how young and experienced the soldiers were during the actual Dunkirk evacuation. So he on purpose decided to cast a lot of young and known and unknown actors. Yeah, and um, this is the first time he's tackled any material like this before, like a historical event, much less a war film. And, um, Rob, you saw this about 36 hours before I did. I told you mm-hmm. after you saw it that we were living in two separate realities. <laughs> Dunkirk. I had not. My reality in, was like, better. Yeah. <laughs> you were in the upside down. Right. Your yeah, reality was better for now. But now <laughs> our realities have linked up. We're on the We've same both plane. Seen this. Yes. And um, I'm going to throw it back to you for your initial impressions on Dunkirk. Sure. And then we can uh, take it from there. My initial impression, and I said this almost immediately after walking out of the theater, that's the mm-hmm. I said that's the best movie of the year so far. Um, oh. I I think hands down. I mean, uh, it it surpasses Get Out as my favorite movie of the year so hot far. Hot take. Hot take. Yeah, this. I mean, <laughs> it's just a a really Get Out has been dethroned. <laughs> it's a. I I don't feel. Uh, I don't feel nervous or antsy saying it's a great film. And (laughs) I was actually sort of thinking, I don't know what's a better war film of this century. Um, Mm. I know. I thought you were going to go of all time and I was about to get into arguments. I mean, I know we're. Yeah, now <laughs> I need to. Uh, no, I need to digest it a little more <laughs> right. before I before I go that far. But uh, I, of the century, it's it's in the the top. You know, it's in the running for my favorite war film of the century so far. Um, mm. It just uh, unbelievable filmmaking here by Christopher Nolan. Um, I just thought the the way that it was structured. You know, the we'll get into the three timelines that were shown yeah. and the way that you know he told this story in a way that. You know, it could have maybe been uh, without sort of that uh, alternate timeline aspect, maybe could have been sort of uh, one dimensional, I guess. But it, that really like brought it uh, into a different level for me. And then um, 
just the fact that there were there was really no like expository dialogue or information <laughs> not given. much dialogue at all really. yeah you know but, I mean, very but minimal really no backstory on any of the characters and i've seen some reviews yeah. where that's that's being you know uh proclaimed as like a negative yeah but i yeah. i think it was really cool and just uh you know you were thrown right into the 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 battle uh instantly and uh you never taken out of it never never had a second to breathe uh the tension building and and sustainment of tension was just sort of incredible mm-hmm. um i i was going to i brought in a uh i brought in a snack and an iced coffee and i think i took 3 <laughs> sips of the iced coffee and never even looked at the snack cuz the movie was I your was iced just, coffee i was just it's transfixed <laughs> yeah i i couldn't even you know take my eyes off the screen for a moment so <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, what's what's sort of your initial takeaway and uh, reaction? So, what were you feeling? I think I first want to talk about the IMAX experience that I I viewed okay. this in. So I saw this in yeah. Lincoln Square AMC, which is a pretty well known theater in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. They have the largest screen in the city. It's literally four stories tall. Wow, it's gigantic. And um, I had seen like Interstellar there and, and uh, Gravity when it came out. You know these big uh, movies that are shot in that format and meant to be viewed in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is my first time back there in a few years, and the IMAX experience was just truly incredible. About seventy percent of of uh, Dunkirk was shot in that format, and it fills the entire screen and. You know, the scenes specifically in the air with, like, Tom Hardy's character. Yeah. It felt like I was in a flight simulator. It didn't even feel like I was on a movie. I was on, like, a roller coaster ride. Right. It reminded me of, like, those, like... Remember, like, as a kid, like, you go to, like, those short IMAX movies where you're just, like, what it's like to be in a fighter jet and you're, like, gliding over, Mm. you know, land and stuff like that. It was like that. But this is a feature-length movie with actors and a (laughs) three-act story, you know, and stuff like that. So that was just... And in those scenes, I mean, just the vastness of the sea and the choreography of the planes and everything uh-huh. was just, like, amazing to watch. And it's just insane that Nolan, he placed, like, IMAX cameras in the cockpit of an actual plane. <laughs> yeah. IMAX cameras are gigantic. I know. And they're super noisy. And they're, like, this huge burden. But he's, like, he doesn't care. You know, first and foremost, he just wants to bring this experience to viewers. Right. And I'm sure it's, like, such a pain <clears throat> to put together. Oh, but, yeah. Um, the sound in the theater, it just, like, oh, rumbled man. my insides. I mean, yeah, whether it's the bombs that are dropping and, you know, the explosions, the, the gunshots from the planes and the score, the sound was really incredible. And just, like, the cinematography, you know, which we, of course, touch on whenever we're reviewing a movie, it's just, it's expected with any Nolan movie, it's outstanding. I mean, the long landscapes, like, shots of the beach. Yeah. There's really heavy color filters. It almost felt, like, very, like, sepia-heavy. Uh-huh. And, like, it just... I don't know, added a lot of just, like, emotion in the scene of just, uh-huh. like, the colors and just, like, I don't know, I, I thought they did a really strong job of that. Yeah. Just, like, the overall scale of everything. Yeah. And it's just, it's so practical. Like, he's, <clears throat> Nolan is, um you know, someone who tries to use as little CGI as possible. I don't even know, there wasn't a scene where I was like, oh, that's CGI. I mean, they um, use actual planes yeah. and naval destroyers. I'm sure. I, like, I heard. Um, I don't know if there was any CGI. I mean, maybe, maybe they yeah. touched up some shots at the, you know, at the end when they were editing but i think yeah. everything was was done with the intent of you know practicality and everything in camera so yeah i read that they used 62 ships during filming which i think wow. is like the record 
world record for most ships used during the movie. <laughs> they had 1,500 extras. Jeez. So, yeah, rather than, like, you know, you can duplicate that stuff through CGI, but, like, he just wants to keep everything as grounded in reality as possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, another thing that stood out to me is, like, despite it being very intense and brutal, there's really no blood or gore in the violence. Right. It's more just, like, tension building. He doesn't need to go, you know, it, it has, you know, it has PG-13 rating for, for a reason. Right. And um, it felt very, like, meditative. Like, the stretches of no dialogue kind of reminded me of there will be blood in that sense, especially uh-huh. in the first act. I don't know. I, I just could see that maybe being an influence for yeah him, but yeah i was thinking you know, the same is, thing yeah. yeah yeah just like in it was refreshing to have like minimal dialogue and right. just more about putting you in kind of in the shoes of like what it was like during that day or that week mm-hmm. and just you know stripping everything else away right um this is not you know even though this came out in the middle of the summer it is not by any means your typical blockbuster. I think it's just because like Nolan's name is attached to it, and it has some kind of stars. But other than that, I mean, this is not this is not fit any kind of mold for the yeah. blockbuster. And um, I really liked that it was only a little over a hundred minutes, which right. is actually his shortest movie since his debut film, Following, which uh-huh. came out you know twenty years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned the story structure. Um, now this is where we may we may come to uh, some disagreement here, Rob. Okay. Uh, so I actually, you know, you mentioned it was told in three, this non-linear way with three different perspectives. So you're on the beach with the infantry. Mm-hmm. There's the evacuation by the navy, and in the air, all told over different time frames. And actually, to me, even though this was very innovative, it, upon my first watch, this was kind of the biggest drawback for me. It just like. The best word I can describe it is like disjointed. Like it just mm. didn't gel with me. Like I was confused. I don't know. My roommates who I saw it with, they like love the structure and they like got all of it. I just, I really need to rewatch this. I may like yeah. see this again in the next few days. I'm definitely seeing it. In I, the I really again. want to rewatch it. Yeah. Cause yeah. I just, um, you know, Nolan, he's been known for this type of structure throughout his career. Um, kind of this cross cutting and parallel editing where mm-hmm. two or more scenes are happening simultaneously, but in different locations. And he's been doing, he has like at least a few scenes in every one of his movies that uses that structure. But in Dunkirk, he blows it up and makes the entire movie based off this structure. Yeah. So it's a challenging format, but I don't know. I mean, I applaud him for really like, I saw that he said this is his most experimental film and I I would agree with that. Uh Um, It just, I don't know, like I I wasn't able to really latch on to any of the character. Like it just felt like it helped with the momentum, but also like, brought me out of it at times and like since like some of the scenes are pretty similar to one another like they kind of like swash together the three's perspectives and i kind of got confused myself yeah. just like oh is that like how things are kind of connected and because they're all in different timelines well um, i feel like yeah so yeah. i feel like at some point in the pre-production there was an alternative version of this film where you know we had a few scenes of character development or you know, backstory on that, on that, uh, the guy who was on the mole the whole time on the dock, uh, the, the captain or whatever, you know, you see a little backstory about him and it gives you some, uh, context of, you know, how these men are so important to him or, you know, like, uh, or you get a little backstory and the main character, uh, you know, played by, uh, Fionn Whitehead Mm -hmm. and then, you know, and, but maybe, like you said, Christopher Nolan said this is his most experimental film. Maybe it's just with the fact that he didn't give any of that information and he just showed you 
showed you these characters in this moment without you know any uh, background of of their lives or or their experience in the battle or in the war. Yeah. So um yeah I mean I for me it worked. Uh, if I could watch it, I mean if I rewatch it, there is a chance I'd be like, oh yeah, this is bloody brilliant and I love this. Yeah. You know, like it, it's something that I want to. It's just very unique. Reason. You don't. Yeah, it's one of the. Uh, I I can't even think of another movie. Maybe. That's told I mean, the entire really, way it's like hard. this. I mean, obviously there's been other nonlinear storyline, you know, like something like 2001 comes to mind, but to do it from these three different perspectives, all different time frames, and especially, uh-huh. I mean, I don't think that's ever been done in the war genre, at least. Um, so that's what I was going to say. I can't think of another film, especially in the war genre, that just gives you nothing except, you know, like I said, no expository, uh, you know, information or whatever. But um, so... I your theater experience was completely opposite of what I had. Um, yeah. I unfortunately saw it in a, a a normal theater screen, and it's a it was a Cinemark um, <laughs> theater in Long Beach that I've been to uh, many times already, and it's fine. You know, it's a it's just your normal. It has the leather reclining seats and everything, and I was like, all right, it's a matinee show uh unfortunately i'm not going to see it in 70 millimeter for the first <laughs> viewing but it'll be fine you know yeah, yeah um unfortunately the whoever's the dummy up there operating the you know the digital projector i know how those things work they're not that complex uh you basically <clears throat> you get a file from the production studio and you you plug it into the the <laughs> big projector thing and then you pull it up and you hit play um Were there some, they uh, some the issues? aspect ratio was not done correctly so i should have gone up there and been like hey man check your aspect ratio. well i had to unfortunately i had to leave quickly after the movie because uh my girlfriend <laughs> had to, give get a to piece work of your mind. Yeah, yeah but uh i wanted to say like you guys i mean this is a <laughs> despicable performance by your projectionist <laughs> Um, it, 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 I had black bars on the sides and the top of the screen. So it was like, I was watching like an old YouTube video or something. Um, I mean, it looked better than that, but it it was still fine and everything, but the sound was good, which made up for it a little bit, but I am going to see this movie again and I'm going to seek out the IMAX full experience, uh, you know, as Christopher Nolan intended it to be watched so i uh yeah no that we it sounded like we had pretty pretty opposite uh you know as far as yeah the the screen format that we were viewing it on um so yeah i'm kind of right currently and i just saw this last night this is like fresh in my mind but i am a bit at war with myself oh that i because i want to love this movie but i just can't shake this aspect of how the story was structured and how that kind of just took me out of it a bit it's holding me back from loving it i'm a (laughs) conflicted man but I like this movie a lot. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I need to rewatch this. And I think maybe everything will click from the storytelling point of view. Um, going back to what I really admired about this film. I mean, you know, Nolan, he, he wrote and directed this, you know, all himself. And I just really liked the very, like, small details that felt very true to history. Like mm-hmm. we mentioned the the bread and jelly sandwiches yeah. and, and stuff. Um, but also, like, the foam on the beach. Right. And, like the scenes where like the pilots are like jotting down their fuel levels, like on chalk on their dashboard. I don't know. I just feel like it was so immersive. You just felt like you were in, you were in the planes with, uh, with those guys and you were in the, the, the claustrophobic, uh, sort of nature of all the ships you were, you know, and, and just the way that, 
like you would get onto the next ship and you'd there'd be like this sense of jubilation amongst the <clears throat> the troops and you know they'd have a sense of of joy for a few moments and then it would so quickly turn into like just dread and terror again and then you're that boat's sinking and you have to <laughs> abandon ship and it was just like right. this constant state of flux and uh never let you never let you settle into your seat and uh you know just sit back settle and into your, enjoy into your, your ride was, you were sitting up and your, your <clears throat> recliner was declined because i actually so did excited. decline yeah <laughs> all right <laughs> you had to get on the edge of your seat literally yeah uh, yeah, but just the, the immersive experience for me is what made it and, and made it very unique. And uh, and just the tension building, the Hans Zimmer score. I yeah, mean, with the clock ticking I was like, throughout. Yeah, I was like, what is this score titled? Tension Building 101? It's like <laughs> right, yeah, the yeah. whole thing was just, the whole thing was, uh, you know, kept you, kept you locked in and never let you relax. I feel like there was almost a score like, at all times like right. maybe there were like a few minutes like during like some dialogue scenes but there was always some backing score and yeah i read that um that clock ticking that was used throughout hans zimmer actually used nolan's like pocket watch oh really and then kind of like recorded that originally and yeah. then just like ran it through these like synthesizers and huh. modulated it and just used that as like the device which i thought was pretty cool um i mean one thing though about the sound um the other aspect that i just was a little frustrating for me was honestly like I don't think I can understand about 50% of the dialogue yeah and I think that was a combination of the thick British accents and also like the IMAX sound there was just like so much happening in the background no I noticed that also it was just hard you know and there wasn't much dialogue to begin with but I yeah. felt like I was missing some key like motivations or maybe not like plot points but I don't know it's just you know that dialogue is meant to be heard and I just right. couldn't really understand it so that again is another big reason why I want to want to rewatch this soon. Um, yeah, there were a few lines that I didn't catch either and I, I think what you said is correct. It's a combination of the the accents and and just the noise going on around them, but yeah, maybe that could have been uh mm-hmm. touched up a little bit, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe that's that's part of the experimenting that Nolan was doing yeah. just showing, you know, getting the take in it's more about the the facial expressions uh, more than the the dialogue or whatever. Sure. So I know that this is getting already some some best picture buzz, and I think it'll yeah. definitely get a nomination. And yeah, honestly, I, I mean, so. I could see it winning best picture. I mean, maybe best director. I mean, Nolan's someone who's been, um, you know, making films for you know, I don't know what twenty twenty five years now. He's mm-hmm. pretty re- well respected. Uh, figure has made some i don't know near masterpieces in the past so um i don't know it'll be interesting to see and obviously once the oscar race gets going towards the end of the year we'll be covering all that but uh mm-hmm. what i wanted to ask what i mean i think it's safe to say you uh you're a huge fan of this movie you love yeah. that i wanted to ask what your overall rating was using the scale of one to ten you can use decimals sure. um, what's kind of your your rating mm-hmm. right now would you say um well I definitely want to see it again because of my experience uh, in the theater and <laughs> with a competent, with yeah, a competent uh, and, projector uh, person. <laughs> and just to understand the structure a little more, pick up. I'm sure I'll pick up on a few uh, little timing uh, things that I didn't notice in the first viewing. But um, I mean, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go like a nine point five. Uh, Whoa! Whoa yeah. there! Whoa there! Yeah. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, <laughs> I mean, it's it's just. 
I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to use the word perfect or anything like that, but right. just for what the battle was and and for his uh, his vision as a filmmaker, I just thought it was extremely successful and a really unique storytelling experience. And it's in the nines for you. It's it's a salt. It's a it's definitely in the the realm of the nines. Yeah, it's the highest rated movie for me of the year so far. I'm not going to say it's my best picture pick because it's uh you know it's still July, July <laughs> but um yeah it I'll put it at a nine point five. What what were you thinking? Um, so I have down and now I, this could rapidly change after my second viewing but i have this at an 8.1 right now just because i <laughs> look at 8.1 is good man it's, it's in the eights like it's you know it's not that's a, uh, that's a low i'm not B, giving man. this like a 4.3 right? that's a c plus um i don't think it's right c plus no 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 i well, uh, when you put it like that um <laughs> it may sound harsh but no i see this as a movie again that i really liked a lot i didn't love but you know this is why i want to go back you know i'm not when I receive, when I rewatch this, it could go up to the the realm of the nines if okay. that story structure, which is like yeah. a, just a huge aspect of the film. I mean, it's it's the story, it's the way it's told, it's it's constant throughout the movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, um, just for me, and like I was in the minority of the people I saw this with. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's a, it's a me problem, but uh, no. that that's just those are just my honest feelings. Yeah, but I mean, fine. going back to like. This is a must-watch in the theaters. The scenes in the air, I mean, just sign me up for all of that. That was, like, the biggest highlight, the way that's captured. And just, right. like, it's incredible to watch. Um, and I love that he he put that on screen for, for movie lovers because it really is, like, unlike any kind of viewing experience you can have. Yeah. If you're a cinema or film lover uh this is a must i'm glad you said that this is a must uh to see in the theater totally. i mean don't wait till this gets uh on blu-ray or whatever you got to see this in the theater it's it's how it was meant to be seen you know is shot in imax imax is ideal if you live in virginia there's the udvar hazi and the just google your your best imax theater near yeah the, at the air and space museum in dc um and then in, in new york and la obviously there are a few options but yeah, it's uh, or just see it in a regular theater, whatever. Um, it's definitely worth seeing the sound and the just the experience. So you, f- you really feel like you're in it. Um, you, you get the sense of uh, the claustrophobia and just the the horror that these men were facing. Uh, f- uh, you know, some for a week, some for a day, some for an hour. Uh, that's how it was structured. They yeah. had the the beach or the mole for one week. Uh, all the guys stranded on the beach. Uh, the sea uh, perspective was one day, uh, and we're we're mostly seeing Mark Rylance's uh, you know civilian boat uh, with his son and and their their assistant another boy, um, and then the air which was Tom Hardy and and the other pilot main pilot I'm not sure of his name mm-hmm. uh, that was just one hour. Because uh, those those British Spitfire planes apparently could only hold an hour of fuel. Yeah. So it was just fascinating, and, and um, yeah, just uh, definitely see it in the theater. I would highly recommend that. So this sound is this your your number one Nolan film? It sounds like. Um. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, we were <laughs> we wanted to get into that a little bit where this stands in his career arc. Um. I'm not sure if it's the number one Nolan. I'm not quite ready to put it at that level. <laughs> yeah, um. Yeah. But I mean, potentially it could be. Um. 
I mean, it's really just personal taste at that point. If you look at Christopher Nolan's career, it's it's he's made what nine or ten films, and pretty much they're all good, if not great. You know, like yeah, very consistent. Uh, I mean, I had yeah. some issues with Interstellar and Dark Knight Rises, but I mean, he's Dark Knight you know, Rises. Whether it's, my probably his worst. Yeah, right. Um, you know, going back to Memento, which I think has kind of like become a pretty odor, underrated film. And that one, the story structure, again, very experimental and, and innovative. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'm still a huge Dark Knight guy and Batman Begins. I think Batman Begins is actually like one of the five I love best Bat- comic book movies I in love general. I love that movie, like, yeah. yeah. I like it, it more yeah. than The Dark Knight, actually. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, we got into some heated arguments in Batman <laughs> rankings in college, It's just the but, last, uh, we'll the last uh, 20 to 30 minutes of The Dark oh, yeah. Knight. Uh, I, just, I just can't get around it. <laughs> um, Inception is obviously very well executed and, um, you know, a lot of... I mean, you think like that was kind of a movie that kind of broke Tom Hardy and Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a way. Yeah, it was just I mean, that was kind of a phenomenon when it came out. Don't sleep um, on the prestige. Yeah, no prestige. is very solid. I haven't seen that one in a while. Um, I still haven't seen Insomnia uh, with Robin Williams and Al Pacino, which um, he made like, have you seen that? that it's kind of got lost in the shuffle. And then there's following, which I want to see. It's his first film. I have um, seen that. It's good. It's good. Yeah. It's not, I'm it's just probably not in his to top see. films, but it's no, it yeah, good. I'm sure it's first one, but um, it's hard for me to do. I, I want to hold off on giving a definitive top five. Cause I, until after I see Dunkirk again, cause it could very well fit into the top five for me mm-hmm. still like, you know, the other four, I mean, some order, I mean, Dark Knight's first and then some order of Batman begins memento and inception. Okay. Uh, are probably my favorite of his, yeah. but yeah. My favorite, in no particular order, I would say uh, Batman Begins, The Prestige, Dunkirk, uh, Interstellar. I I actually really liked Interstellar. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, uh, we can we can talk about that another day, but um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, do we want to wrap it up on Dunkirk? Um, uh, you know, let's do another hour. Uh, yeah, want to yeah. do a two and a half hour podcast? No, yeah, we've gone on uh, way long, but um, you know, I just want to point out that I'm also seeing Kendrick Lamar tonight. So yes, um, it's a hell yes. of hell of a culture weekend for me. It and is maybe on the next episode. Man, you're, I can you're packing it. Shed in. some insights, <laughs> right? Right. I will be. I'm, editing yeah, I'm this living podcast. the life, man. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slaving away. No. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's it for this episode of Must Go Faster. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Tell a friend uh, and check out our website uh, with all our episodes at mustgofasterpod.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, in the words of Sirio Farrell, first sword of Bravos, that is only one God, and his name is Death. And that is only one thing we say to death. Not today. There is only one God. And his name is death. And that is only one thing we say to death. Not today. <laughs>